get my microphone in my pocket. These medieval uniforms are not conducive to sound equipment. So good to see all of you. Probably wondering, last week was the Sermonator, and then this is this week, what's coming next week. So, yep, you never know. So excited about VBS this week. Appreciate your prayers that it goes well. Let's go ahead and open in prayer now for preaching of God's Word. Father, I confess I've looked forward to preaching this passage for years. I know that I've, I've mentioned it or referenced it in other sermons, turned to it different times, Lord, but how incredible it is to be able to dig into these verses and give them uh, the sermon that, that they deserve over this morning and next week, Lord. It's just so powerful. I don't think there are any passages in Scripture, or at least narratives, that rival the picture of righteousness and how it is and is not attained in this parable. So I thank you so much for it, Lord. I just feel like there's so many incredible truths. The gospel presented in such a beautiful way between the Pharisee and the tax collector that I would just ask that by your grace, justice can be done to these verses. I come here wanting the beauty of them to be exposed so clearly to your people, feeling inadequate to do so, Lord. And so I pray that despite any of my weaknesses, you would do justice to your word and to this parable in particular this morning and next week. I pray for receptive hearts. I pray like Pastor Nathan did, that if there would be any unbelievers here, or perhaps even worse, unbelievers who believe that they are believers, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would not go home as the, as the Pharisee did, uh, unjustified, but like the tax collector who repented and came to faith in Christ would be justified. Use this for your glory this morning and next Sunday, Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, great to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is The Failure of Works Righteousness in the Parable of the Pharisee and Tax Collector. So as I prayed, I have spent years looking forward to reaching this passage. It has been a blessing to me to be studying it. On Sunday mornings, if you're new to joining us, we are working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves here at Luke 18, verse 9. I want to begin with what I believe is the most important question we can ask. Let me say that one more time. I want to begin with what I would say is the most important question we can ask, which Job asked, Job 9.2, how can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be righteous before God? And this question comes up again later in the book, Job 25.4, how then can man be righteous before God? And I believe that this is the most important question we can ask because this is the question that determines where we spend eternity. And so because of that, there could not be a more important question to ask than this. This is the question that every religion asks. And so that would seem good on the surface that every religion is asking the most important question that can be asked. But the problem is this, and let me say this absolutely clearly, every single religion gets this question wrong except Christianity, including every single religion that I would say is a cult that gets the gospel wrong, even though they call themselves Christians. And so there, unfortunately, there can be some religions that resemble Christianity and call themselves Christians that get this question wrong because they believe that we are righteous by works. Every religion outside of Christianity believes we are righteous or right before God by being good or by works. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, hey, Pastor Scott, ask us. We're going to get it right. Ask us. Okay, I'll ask you. Justified means declared righteous. Yes, absolutely. We're justified or declared righteous by, by faith or by grace through faith. 
That is the gospel, and this brings us to lesson one. Our works can't make us righteous before God. Our works can't make us righteous before God. We cannot be justified or declared righteous by God by works. And the Pharisee and tax collector, which we'll be looking at this morning and next week, demonstrate this better than any other narrative in Scripture. There are other passages, in particular Romans 4, that deal with justification in greater detail, but in terms of a narrative or example of what it looks like to be justified or declared righteous by faith versus works, there's no better example than this parable. Job continues wrestling with being righteous before God. Just a few verses later, so here we go. Job 9.2, how can a man be righteous before God? Job 9.15, he says, though I were righteous, even if I was righteous, I cannot answer God. I would instead beg mercy of my judge. So Job said he couldn't even be righteous enough to answer God, say nothing about being in his presence. Instead, he would have to beg for mercy. A few verses later, Job 9.20, though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. So Job goes so far as to say that if he was righteous, his mouth, which is simply to say his own words, would still condemn him and show him to be a perverse individual. And we've talked about this as a family numerous times because of our failure with our words toward each other, that James 3 says that if a man could be perfect with all of his words, he would be a perfect individual. If we could, if we could bridle our tongues perfectly, then we would be perfect individuals. And so Job says, even if I was before God, my mouth itself would condemn me. Show me to be perverse. I'm sure all of us feel convicted about different things we've said at times. Now, <clears throat> here's something that's interesting to me. That Job, of all people, recognized he couldn't be righteous before God. Because if we were talking about, let's say, Saul, or let's say we were talking about Noah, who got drunk, or let's say we were talking about David, who committed adultery and murder, We can understand why they say that they couldn't be righteous before God, but we're talking about Job himself, whom God said to Satan, Job 1.8, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So here's my point. If there is someone in Scripture who could be righteous before God, I would argue that you couldn't find a better example than Job because God himself gives him one of the greatest descriptions. I cannot imagine a better description than what God himself says of Job. Satan told Job, excuse me, Satan told God, if you remember, that God, that Job only served God because God had blessed Job so much, and so then God gave Job, God gave Satan permission to take away all of Job's blessings except for his own life. So Satan removes everything Job has, every blessing, and then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you, Satan, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So Job was so righteous that even Satan himself could not serve as a wedge to turn him away from God. And after Job lost everything, God still described him this way, but he still couldn't be righteous before God. Listen to what Jesus said to the people in his day. 
who thought that they could be righteous before God. Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You will never be righteous enough. The religious leaders were the picture of righteousness attained by human effort. And so when Jesus said this, everyone knew that it was an impossibility to be more righteous than the Pharisees. So when Jesus said this, people would have said there is no way, there's no way we can even match the righteousness of the Pharisees, say nothing about exceed it. So at this point, it should be obvious that we can't be righteous in our own effort. But here's a question. Is there a sacrifice, perhaps, that we could bring? Is there an offering that would allow us to be in God's presence? Could we ever give or sacrifice enough, perhaps start enough churches? Could we, we ever uh, offer anything so great that we would be righteous enough before God? Well, interestingly, the prophet Micah asked this question, and just listen to these verses. Micah 6.6, 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with, a, with calves? A year old. So, in other words, will this allow me to come before God? He says, Will the Lord be pleased with, listen to this, with thousands of rams? Not just like a thousand, but thousands of rams, an unimaginable number of animal sacrifice. He says, What if I brought ten thousands of rivers of oil? So, tons of oil. And now he goes to the most extreme sacrifice. Listen to this human sacrifice. Micah 6 7. Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so this is evil, but as outrageous as it sounds to us, hasn't this been one of the most common ways evil cultures have attempted to be righteous or gain God's favor through human sacrifice, typically sacrificing children? Micah asks this rhetorically, not because he thought that it would please God, but because he knew that it would not please God. Now, my suspicion is, wonderfully, God does not expect this of us, but it is describing what he was willing to do for us, just the language of it. Sacrifice my firstborn for our transgression and sin, which is what God didn't expect of us, but was willing to do himself for us. So I hope you see there's no way for us to be righteous before God through human effort, which is why we read this in the Old Testament, Psalm 143, too. No one living is righteous before God. We know that Job's friends were off in much of what they said to him, but there was an amount of truth. Eliphaz was right when he argued that we can't be righteous. Job 15, 4, he says, What is man that man could be pure, or, who he, or he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? So Eliphaz argues that man can't be righteous. And then in the New Testament, Romans 3, 10, there's no one righteous, not one. Now, by the time we reach this morning's verses, which is far into Jesus's earthly ministry, he is still dealing with individuals who are trusting their self-righteousness for salvation. And so he preaches this incredible parable to show how righteousness is and is not attained. And I just want to say that one more time. The primary purpose of this parable is to reveal how righteousness is not and is attained. With that in mind, look at verse 9, Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable 
to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So he tells this parable to people who trust in themselves that they're righteous and treat others with contempt. Although Jesus did not mention the Pharisees in this verse, we do know that's who he has in mind. And in fact, he ends up using a parable as, or a Pharisee as one of the two individuals in, in the parable. So the parable applies, though, not just, in my suspicions, why didn't he mention the Pharisees? Well, by not mentioning the Pharisees and saying that it's preached for anyone or to anyone who trusts in themselves that they are righteous, it allows this parable to apply to anyone who trusts in their own righteousness. Doing so, trusting in your own righteousness, causes people to believe the world's most common lie. Let me say that one more time. Trusting in our own righteousness causes us, or anyone in the world who trusts in their own righteousness, causes them to believe the world's most common lie, the, world, the lie that every person is born believing, which is, I'm a good person. I am good enough. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. We're self-righteous. We think our ways or our actions are pure. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There are those who are, there are, those who are clean in their own eyes, but they're not washed from their filth. How bad is that? I almost picture when I read this verse, I think of like some filthy child that comes into the house and the mother says something like, hey, you need to go clean off. Don't take a step on the carpet. Go outside and hose yourself off. You're absolutely filthy. And the child says what? No, I'm clean. I'm clean. And it's comical to us, but there's a sense in which we do that, not physically, but spiritually before God. A great example of this in scripture, the Laodiceans. Revelation 3.17, God says that they were saying, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How terrible is that when you've got people that are saying, we're rich, we prospered, we need absolutely nothing? And Jesus looks at them and says, you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not a physical description of them, but a spiritual description. The Laodiceans were so self-righteous, they thought they were great when they were terrible. It's like the apostate northern kingdom of Israel, another example. God sends the prophet Hosea to rebuke the northern kingdom of Israel when they're about to be wiped out by the Assyrians. So the northern kingdom of Israel had become so wicked, turned so far from God, that they're about to be destroyed by the Assyrians. God sends the prophet Hosea to warn them. And listen to what they, the people, were saying about themselves at one of their spiritually lowest points. Hosea 12, 8, Israel said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So the Israelites were saying, They cannot find iniquity or sin in me. I am that righteous. Listen to this. God judges us not just for our sin, but for the self-righteousness that leads us to say we are without sin. So one more time, we don't get judged just for our sin, but even for the self-righteousness that would lead us to think we are without sin. Jeremiah 2.35, you say, I am innocent. Surely God's anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring judgment to you for saying I have not sinned. He wasn't just judging them for their sin. He was judging them for saying that they hadn't sinned. 
Now, why would God be so upset when we deny our sinfulness? Well, I'll give you one answer to that question. Because to say that we're without sin is to call God a liar. To deny our sinfulness is to call God a liar. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we haven't sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So interestingly, to declare our righteousness is also to declare God's deceitfulness. So here's the question. If we're so deceived about our righteousness, then what is the solution? Well, we need something to show us that we're sin sinners. We're so deceived about our sinfulness, we're so convinced of our righteousness, we need something to destroy our deception and show us our sinfulness. And what did God give for that? What did God provide for that to reveal our sinfulness? The law. God has graciously provided the law, despite what the world thinks. It is not something, a tool by which we can be saved or show us how righteous we are. Instead, the purpose is to show us how unrighteous we are. Romans 3.20, by works of the law or by obeying the law, no human will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law gives us the knowledge of our sin so that we can see how incapable we are of keeping it. We see how far below that standard we actually fall. Romans 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. This doesn't mean that God gave the law so we would sin more. It just means that God gave the law so our sins would be increased to us or shown to us easier. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And so Paul thought he was this probably perfect person, and in many respects, he probably looked that way until he read the law that said, do not covet. We don't know exactly what Paul coveted. He, le- he lived a pretty restricted sacrificial life, so I'm sure there are probably plenty of things that he could have coveted. And the moment that he saw the law saying, do not covet, he was convicted and recognized his sinfulness. Now back to Luke 18, 9, notice what Jesus says. Those who trust in themselves are doing, he says, treating others with contempt. And this brings us to lesson two. Self-righteousness leads us to look down on others. Self-righteousness leads us to look down on others. Self-righteousness and looking down on others or treating others with contempt, as the verse says, go together. We cannot help but treat others with contempt if we are self-righteous. We will inevitably, when we are puffed up with pride about ourselves, think others are terrible. We will say things like, you're not as good as me. I am much better than you. You're terrible. I'm wonderful you're horrible, I'm great. Even if we don't say those things aloud, we will inevitably think them in our hearts when we trust in our righteousness. And the Pharisees are the premier example of self-righteousness and looking down on others, which is why this parable is about them. Just using Luke's gospel, let me show you a few times they did this. Turn to Luke 5. Turn to Luke 5. We're going to go through some examples pretty quickly. Just using Luke. Luke 5, 27. After this, Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out. He sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, this Levi is, who do we know Levi as more commonly? 
Levi is Matthew. He is the individual whom the gospel is named after. This Levi here is the same Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Tax collectors are like the scum of the earth. We're going to talk more about tax collectors next week, but just to let you know, if there's anyone you're not going to invite, if you're a religious leader, it is a tax collector. That's exactly who Jesus invites. And then it gets even worse because this tax collector, Levi, decides to throw a party for Jesus and to invite who? All of his other tax collector friends. Look at verse 28. Leaving everything, Levi or Matthew rose and followed Jesus. Verse 29. Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Now, the Pharisees are thrilled at the opportunity Jesus has to preach the gospel to this large group of tax collectors, right? Because <laughs> there's always sinners and tax collectors. You know, tax collectors, it's like tax collectors need their own category. They can't even be part of sinners. They've got to be sinners and tax collectors. And so the Pharisees look and they're like, this is incredible. Here Jesus is with the very scum of the earth, the worst sinners we can imagine, to preach the gospel to them. Praise God. No, not like that at all. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled at Jesus' disciples, and they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Not asking this question sincerely, their hearts are revealed by the word grumbled, mumbling, complaining. That's what they're doing. And so the reason we're looking at this example and a couple others in Luke is because it demonstrates the truth of Luke 18.9 that people who are self-righteous are inevitably going to look down on others or treat them with contempt, which is what we see the religious leaders doing here. Verse 31, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Just like only sick people know they need a physician, only sinners know they need a savior. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, I have come to call sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus doesn't literally mean that there are righteous people who don't need to come to repentance. He means those who are self-righteous, he has not come to call them because they trust in themselves that they are righteous and do not want the righteousness that Christ offers, whereas people who are sinners do. Turn to Luke 7.39 for another example. Luke 7.39. When the Pharisees, who had invited Jesus, saw this, and to give context to this, saw this refers to the sinful woman who is sobbing over her sinfulness and doing what? Using her hair, using her tears to beautifully wash Jesus' feet. The Pharisees invited Jesus, they saw this, and they said to himself, if this man... Were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, and then probably the way they said it, for she is a sinner. You just hear the scorn in their voices toward this woman. Toward this woman. Now, here's what's interesting. This account almost parallels the Pharisee and the tax collector because Jesus ends up praising this woman and condemning the Pharisees. So she goes home justified while they go home unjustified. Turn to Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, to hear him. Luke 15, 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled 
And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Actually, he told them three parables. You remember this chapter? It was this ugly attitude that the religious leaders had toward Jesus that led him to preach the parable of the lost coin, lost sheep, and lost son, or lost sons, I would say. And so God hates this self-righteous attitude that looks down on others so much. Isaiah 65, 5, God says, People who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all the day. So the people that have that self-righteousness that looks down on others, God says he despises it. It's this horrible stench in his nostrils. And that was their religious leaders. But Jesus had something in store for them that was going to be a complete shock. Now look at Luke 18, verse 10. Understanding this is the attitude of the Pharisees leading up to this account, Jesus has a complete shock in store for them. Look at 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now the temple was on a hill, which is why it says that they went up. These two men have a few things in common I just want to point out. First, they're both going to the temple. Second, they're both attempting to approach God. And third, they're both going to pray. Beyond those three similarities, everything else about them could not be more different. They couldn't be further opposites or on further extremes of the spectrum from each other. You've got the Pharisee who's the most righteous, respected person Jesus could portray. And then you've also got the tax collector who is the most sinful, hated man that Jesus could portray. He could not have chosen two men to be further polar opposites of each other. Next week, we'll look at the tax collector. For now, look with me at the Pharisee in verse 11. The Pharisee, he's standing by himself. So much important detail in this to keep in mind. He stands by himself and he prays and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Paul Washer had this beautiful quote about idolatry. Listen to this. Idolatry is when you become the source of your own joy. Idolatry is when you become the source of your own joy. Poverty of spirit is a wonderful thing, end quote. Is there a better example of a man who is the source of his own joy in Scripture than this Pharisee? And an absence of poverty of spirit, which is to say to recognize our spiritual poverty, or that we have nothing with which we could bring before the Lord to please him? Jesus said the parable is for those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. Now listen, this is important. There are primarily two ways that we feel righteous, or there are primarily two ways that we trust in our own righteousness. The Pharisee does both of them. I have done both of them. And you can examine in the privacy of your own heart whether you have done these two things that tempt us to trust in ourselves that we're righteous. And this is the first one. Lesson three, self-righteousness comes from thinking about part one, what we don't do. Self-righteousness comes from thinking about what we don't do, or you could say what we haven't done. 
what we don't do, or you could say what we haven't done. How did the Pharisee feel good about himself? He compared himself to others, and we do the same thing. And when we compare ourselves to others, who do we think about? (laughs) Do we think about the holiest, most wonderful, righteous, pious people we can imagine? No, we think of the most terrible, worst people we can imagine, and we say things like, well, I'm not like those thieves. I'm not like those drug dealers. I'm not like those murderers. I'm not like those adulterers. And we feel very good about ourselves. But we should know from the Sermon on the Mount that even if we haven't committed adultery or murder, physically, we have committed it spiritually in our hearts. Who could say that they have never lusted? Who could say that they have never hated? Then you are to say that you have committed adultery or murder, at least spiritually in your heart. Often, even if we have sinned, this is the other thing we do, we make excuses. We justify it. Have you ever heard the saying that someone else's sin looks bad on them? Looks like it deserves judgment, but the same sin on us looks like it should receive mercy and grace. The point is we can look at the bad things other people do when we make no excuse for them, but we justify or excuse the same things that we do. You know, I lied. Yeah, sure, I lied. You caught me lying, but it was for a good reason. I was mean to those people, but if I didn't stand up for myself, they would have kept walking all over me. Sure, I looked at things that I shouldn't, but if God didn't want me looking at these things, he wouldn't have given me these desires. I left work early before I was supposed to, but just think about all those other days that I worked hard that make up for it. Now, here's an interesting question. Think about this. Was the Pharisee lying? This is a trick question. I was telling you I'm not asking you a trick question. I'm sort of asking you a trick question. The Pharisee says, I'm not like these other men. I don't look like them. I don't act like them. Was he lying? He wasn't lying. He didn't look like them. That was a true statement. He did not look like the sinners he mentioned. He looked like a righteous person. But this filled him with cancerous pride. And as we will see next week, it actually made him worse than the tax collector who did look terrible. So we might not look like sinners we can think of, but when we focus on them, if it fills us with that prideful cancer, we can become worse than them. And the Pharisee's not done yet. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Five times in two verses, the Pharisee used the word I. So it is obvious when he prays who he is thinking about himself and who he's not thinking about God. In fact, the only time he even mentioned God was when he thanked God for how great he was, not God being great, but the Pharisee being great, right? That's the only time he mentioned God. I just thank you, God, that I am so awesome. May I please let you know how much I appreciate how wonderful I am and just pass that along to you. I am incredibly special, and I want you to know that. And this is the other main way we feel self-righteous. Lesson three, part two, self-righteousness comes from thinking about what we do. Self-righteousness comes from these two primary behaviors, thinking about what we don't do. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I don't murder. And then thinking about what we do do, our religious activity, our service. I am religious. I pray. I serve. I go to church. I give. I receive communion. I serve a VBS. 
I invited people to VBS. I talked to people after service. I pray for people. I'm interested. I'm humble. Look how humble I am. So we think about all these things we do. We think about all of our religious activity, and it allows us to become very puffed up. Now, we almost cannot be annoyed by the Pharisees' pride, but I cannot tell you how ingrained this is in every single person in a works-based religion. I thank God that I was saved in my early 20s, and I could wish that I had been saved earlier, but one of the blessings of having been saved out of a works-based system is it allows me to look back and recognize the problems associated with works-based religions. And so right here, the Pharisees' pride is just like outrageous to us. It's so irritating. But I cannot tell you how many times before I became a Christian, when I was still Catholic, I was made to feel exactly like this. If you asked me why I would go to heaven, what would I say to you? I have been baptized. What, I, I say that loosely because it was sprinkling as a baby, which is not baptism. I've even asked the elders, do not refer to infant baptism as baptism because you're giving it a legitimacy that it should not have. Baptism means immerse. When you sprinkle a baby, that's not immerse. That is not baptism. Don't give it that credibility. But let's just say I would say that I was baptized as a baby. I had my first communion. I served as an altar boy. I had my confirmation. I went to confession. I went to church regularly. I observed the holy days. I would have sounded exactly like this man. This is why I would have said that I should enter the kingdom of God. I am a good person, and I'm definitely not as bad or not bad at all. I'm not definitely not like those murderers and thieves, tax collectors, extortioners, all this. This was me. This is exactly what my works-based religion produced. Sadly, many of the religious things I trusted in, it gets even worse, I did wrongly. Let me say one more time. Many of the religious things I did, I did wrongly, even sinfully. I confessed my sins, but who did I confess them to? A priest. I trusted him to absolve me. I did not believe my sins were forgiven until this priest told me they were forgiven. I prayed, but I prayed to Mary, saints. I use the word loosely because saints, when I say pray to saints, I'm not even referring to saints biblically. Saints in the Catholic Church are different than saints are believers or Christians the elect, chosen, all of those refer to the same category of believers. But in the Catholic Church, a saint is someone who's performed a miracle, lived this incredible life, who's in heaven. I was praying to those people constantly. Now, I could go on, but I mention this because it's the same with the Pharisee. He trusted his religious activity, but much of it was done wrongly. First, he prayed, and I use that loosely. He prayed, but it's pretty much the worst prayer in history. Even if he would have prayed to be a billionaire, it would have sounded more spiritual than this. So he prays, but he prays in a very sinful way. He thanks God, just in case you don't know which other men he thinks he's better than, for not being like them, and he even lists them. He didn't say, I thank you that I'm better than other men. He tells you the other men he's better than. Something interesting is because he noticed the tax collector who happened to be in the back behind him, consider this, when he prayed, he recognized the tax collector back there, which means... He's paying attention to the people around him. He's enjoying being noticed. He's enjoying the attention. Now, he did pray standing, which was an acceptable posture. We'll see that the tax collector prayed standing too. But more than likely, he's standing up front for others to see him. And you say, well, isn't that speculation? I don't think it's speculation because this is how Jesus said the Pharisees prayed. 
Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So more than likely, he's standing at the front for everyone to see, doing exactly what Jesus condemns. So he terribly prays, sinfully prays. Now, because this is a parable, you could wonder if someone could really be this self-righteous. Adam Clark told the story of a rabbi named Simeon, the son of Yochai, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who said this, and this is a well-known account. I found it on numerous, numerous commentaries or numerous sites when I was trying to establish the credibility of it. So this rabbi Simeon said this, if there were only 30 righteous persons in the world, I and my son would make two of them. But if there were but 20, I and my son would be of the number. And if there were but 10, I and my son would be of the number. And if there were but five righteous people, I and my son would be of that number. And if there were but two righteous people, I and my son would be those two. And if there were but one, myself should be that one. He believed himself to be the most righteous person in the world. Second, he boasts about his tithing. But listen to Jesus condemn the way that the religious leaders tithe. Matthew 23, 23. What do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? What were they tithing, giving tithes of? Mint and dill and cumin. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Is that cumin? Is that correct? Whatever. He's tithing on spices and herbs. This is not the way that God expected them to tithe. And Jesus condemned that too. Jesus condemned the prayers, the way they prayed. Jesus condemned the way they tithe. He boasts about his fasting. I don't know if many people know this. There's no expectation, or let me say this, there's no command in the New Testament for Christians to fast. And I've invited the church to fast before. So I'm for fasting. But it's not commanded in the New Testament for Christians. And then in the Old Testament, the law required Jews to fast once per year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16, 29, it will be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall fast and do no work. So the Pharisees went so far beyond what the law required that instead of fasting once per year, they fasted 104 times per year. And the sad, sad irony is this. The Pharisee in this parable thinks he's going to heaven because of his self-righteousness. But but we will see next week that he could not be further from heaven. Now our last lesson, lesson four. Only one person is righteous enough. This was the sermon I was going to preach when I came back from the NCFCA tournament, but because of what transpired with the SBC convention, uh, their decision to remove Rick Warren, Saddleback, and their resolution to hold to male leadership in the church, I decided to preach that sermon last Sunday. But there was something that occurred to me. So here's what happens. I'm laboring over a passage, and I can't stop thinking about it. I'm not joking. The passage goes to sleep with me. I wake up thinking about it. Sometimes if I wake up at night, I'll get up to put notes down that I don't want to forget. So the passage is always with me. I'm always thinking about it. It's a thoroughly great blessing to me to give my life to do this. I can't tell you the joy that I have laboring in God's Word each week to put sermons together, even some of the sadness associated with the weeks that I don't have a sermon. So I'm at the NCFCA tournament in Minnesota, and I'm thinking about this passage And I want to share a story with you from that week that I hope illustrates this situation with righteousness. So NCFCA, or Christian Speech and Debate Tournaments, they require numerous judges, even community judges, to come in and judge the different participants. Now, if your children compete, you're expected to judge. We have a handful of people or couples 
in our church who didn't have children competing who just came from the community to judge at one of, one of our local tournaments. This might come as a surprise to you, but I'm telling you I hate judging. And that is not a joke. I hate judging. I hate it so much that every tournament I strive to have a staff position instead of serving as a judge, because if you serve as a staff, I generally serve on the communications team, you don't have to judge. But for some reason, I wasn't able to secure a staff position for the national tournament, and so I was stuck judging that week. And the reason that I hate judging is I have to judge seven or eight competitors who come into a room, and you can't submit your ballot. You're doing it on a computer. They give you a computer if you don't have one, and you have to take the seven or eight competitors that come into your room, and you have to rank them, and you can't click submit on your ballot until numerous parts of that ballot are completed, including having all of these competitors ranked after you watch all of them. Now, I'm not kidding, but it seems like sometimes four kids come into the room, and I think they could all be first place. Now, that's why I hate judging. I enjoy observing (laughs) without having to judge. I mean, I'm going to watch other speeches when I'm not judging or debating because it's so wonderful. But I despise having to judge and rank these kids I know they're pouring their hearts into their presentations. I hate thinking that I'm going to put them in the wrong order, and that's potentially going to determine whether they advance or not. There's local tournaments, which allow people to qualify for regional championships, and then those competitors who do well enough regionally get to go to the national championship. And so that week that I'm in Minnesota, I already despise judging at a local level where it looks like four people can be number one. Can you imagine what it's like at the national tournament where I'm not kidding every single competitor who comes in looks like what? They should be first. It's called first in room. They talk about who's first in room. And I'm looking at every competitor, and they look like they can be first in room. I even started adding a comment on my ballot for some of the competitors that I had to place seventh or eighth, just letting them know how great I still thought they were. (laughs) I wanted them to read that in the comment section that I still thought they were that incredible, and I would even apologize that I had to place them lower and tell them that it was not a reflection of their ability. It was simply a reflection of the quality of the tournament. So I'm watching competitors that walk out of the room, and generally there's people out there waiting. So someone competes, and then the competitor walks out, and then sometimes family and friends follows them out, and they still have the door open for the next competitor to walk in. And you can see them out in the hallway, and what are all the friends and family doing? They're telling them, you did such a great job, you're probably going to be first. And the truth is, they look that way. They did do a great job. They do look like they can be first. And everyone's hugging and telling them how wonderfully they competed. I'm going to tell you about one round in particular. There was a talented, articulate young man He's the kind of young man you look at and you're like, this guy could be like the next president. He's the first competitor in the room. And I said to myself, wow, he's going to be first in room. I was so convinced that this first competitor was going to be first in room that I put him in first place on the ballot. Before I even saw any other competitors, I put him in first place. After the other competitors came in, do you have any idea what place he finished? He finished last. The guy that I thought was going to be first, I'm not kidding, ended up finishing last. The competitors just kept getting better. There was always someone better. There was always someone who was better than what I thought was the best. 
I looked and I literally said, this is the best. This young man is the best. I'm putting him in the first place slot. Nobody will be better. Every single person after him was better. And it kept happening. I thought, well, no, this person will be first. And then someone else is better than them. We look at things through our earthly eyes. We compare people with other people, and we think that people look great because we compare them with other people. Now, I'm going to tell you about someone who did look like they could be first in room. That is the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Paul said. Philippians 3, 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Or in other words, I have reason to believe that I'm first in room. If I compete, I look better than everyone else. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's like, if there are other people who think they can be first in room, I should have even more confidence that I'm first in room than they could have in themselves. You can't even be in the same room with me, is what Paul says. Now listen to his credentials so you can see why he said this about himself. Philippians 3, 5, he says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. That's how zealous I was. As to righteousness under the law, I was so righteous, I was blameless. So he doesn't mean he kept the law perfectly, but he does mean he kept it well enough nobody could blame him for anything or think that he had broken it in any area. Now listen to this, Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. So he says, I don't care how many times I'm first in room. It's all trash to me. That's literally the word he uses, rubbish. And here's why. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them all as rubbish. Everything I could say about myself, all of my credentials, All of the times I could be first in room, I count as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own. As righteous as Paul was, he did not want that righteousness. He wanted Christ's righteousness. Righteousness that comes, my own righteousness that comes from the law, I don't want, but the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So even Paul, who knew he was as righteous as people could get, knew that he was not righteous enough. He knew he needed Christ's righteousness, which is available by faith. And I'll close with this. Christ's righteousness is not available for people who, like Jesus said in verse 9, trust in themselves that they are righteous. Doesn't it make perfect sense why Christ's righteousness would not be available for people who trust in their own righteousness? They wouldn't think that they need Christ's righteousness because they're already convinced they're righteous. Instead, Christ's righteousness is available for people who recognize their unrighteousness, repent, and look to Christ in faith to be saved, as we will see the tax collector do next week. If you have any questions about anything I've shared this morning, I'll be up front after service, and I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for the righteousness that you provide by faith. I thank you for Paul's example. I thank you for Job's example. Could there be individuals who look more righteous to us than Job or Paul? I doubt that, Lord. Yet we recognize that even they were not righteous enough. They struggled with being righteous before you, and so we thank you that you have made righteousness available by faith through Christ 
I suspect there could be an appreciation that I have for that that's unique, having come out of a works-based religion where I previously trusted so much in my own righteousness. But I pray for anyone here, Lord, even children who have grown up in Christian homes, hearing about the righteousness that's available by Christ through faith. From as early as they can remember, Lord, I pray that they would have an incredible thankfulness for the righteousness that you provide by faith. And I pray, Lord, that they would have no affection for it, that they would count as rubbish their own righteousness, as Paul did. I pray that for everyone here, Lord, and that you would open anyone's heart to the gospel who's been shut to it. Grant them repentance and faith in Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen.